Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross. This is our first Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast of the 2022 hurricane season. Coming up is my talk with Dr. Phil Klotzbach from Colorado State University. Phil took over for the legendary Dr. Bill Gray, who first came up with the idea that you could predict in advance how busy or slow a hurricane season could be. Bill started thinking about that in the early 80s and made the first seasonal forecast in 1984. I think you'll enjoy our conversation about the ins and outs of seasonal forecasting and how it's changed. It's a different world now than when Bill Gray started in the 1980s. El Nino and La Nina are big players in what happens in the Atlantic during hurricane season. We talk about the fact that we've been stuck on La Nina, which makes the atmosphere more conducive to hurricane formation. And we talk about how you forecast El Nino or La Nina in the first place. And lots more. My talk with Phil is coming up shortly. But first, just a few words about Tropical Storm Alex and the disturbance it was born from that brought heavy rain to South Florida, which caused tremendous flooding in the Miami and surrounding area. I'm recording this segment on Sunday, June 5th, 2022. Alex was named early this morning when the National Hurricane Center determined the system had acquired enough of a center of circulation to qualify as a named storm. The top winds have been high enough for naming for a couple of days, but the 40-mile-an-hour winds were in a band a long way from the so-called center when it was just a disturbance. The consensus of the computer forecast models was that the disturbance would pull itself together. In other words, the strong winds would come in closer to the center before it got to Florida, although it was always kind of a close call. Because there was a fair chance it could happen, the National Hurricane Center and the National Weather Service really had to put up warnings, and they did it for the southern half of the Florida Peninsula. If Alex had organized in the Gulf as forecast, the winds of Florida would have been higher and the rain would have been even heavier. But strong upper-level winds relentlessly beat on the system and injected dry air into it. There was a thought they might let up just enough for a center to form, helped by some of the strong thunderstorms that were already near the center, but that just didn't happen. In the end, a strong outer band oriented itself north-south, so when it rotated over the Miami area, eight inches to a foot of rain fell over the I-95 corridor, including downtown Miami, and a lot of it came all at once overnight, Friday night, Saturday morning. Water was waist-deep in the very built-up area around downtown Miami. And, of course, Friday night, late, a lot of people are getting done with kind of a good time on the town, and Brickell is a good place to go do that. Well, of course, any time, any place that receives 10 or 12 inches of rain with a lot of it coming in a few hours is going to flood. But that particular part of Miami is very prone to flooding for a lot of reasons. The first big one is that it's almost all high-rise buildings, sidewalks, and roadways now. There's almost no place for the water to go except down the drains, and some of it eventually goes into Biscayne Bay. The second is that the sewer system doesn't have enough capacity to handle that much water. 
In fact, it overwhelmed the sewage treatment plant, and they had a mess of a flood there. As a precaution, they ended up closing the beaches to be sure the overflowing sewage didn't pollute the water. It was nasty, uh, to say the least. What they really are going to have to do is figure out a way to store some of the water locally in the Brickell area, like they do in Miami Beach, where they build a big cistern under some of the streets. They put the water there until they can pump it out and they have the capacity to deal with it. But also, any drainage from that water that goes into Biscayne Bay doesn't work well when the tides in the bay are extremely high. And lately, they've been running more than a foot above normally predicted tide levels, which is already elevated by the general worldwide sea level rise due to thermal expansion of the ocean water and other factors caused by global warming. The slowing of the Gulf Stream, which is just offshore of Miami, might be a contributing factor as well due to complex factors caused by the warmer atmospheric and oceanographic system. Less water is being transported into the North Atlantic where it gets cold and it sinks. Well, the water in the south kind of piles up because it can't move north at the same rate. And to some degree, it spreads out, which raises the coastal water levels from Miami to well up the east coast. The high water blocks the outflow of drainage systems that go into the bay, and that slows the process. So when too much rain comes all at once, there's just no place for it to go. Of course, it was a mess, and it didn't help that some people thought that their cars would work as submarines, but that's a different story. Now the dry air that was inhibiting development is spread across Florida, and the weather is beautiful. As of today, Alex is very lopsided, but it's strengthened into a strong tropical storm as it approaches the waters north of Bermuda. This is what there was some chance of happening when the disturbance was approaching Florida. There's a forecasting rule that says forecasts for disorganized, just developing, or slow-moving systems will always be subject to large errors and likely to change, and there you go. Okay, here's my talk with our first guest on the podcast this year. Dr. Phil Klotzbach, hurricane research scientist at Colorado State University. Hi, Phil. Thanks for coming on. Always good to see you. Thanks so much, Brian. So the obvious place to start is the updated hurricane season forecast. You, you bumped it up slightly from your April starting point. Has something changed or is the system for making the June forecast just different? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's two. So the forecast numbers we did call for a, a, a well above normal season, 20 named storms of those 20, 10 becoming hurricanes, and of those 10, five becoming major category three, four, five hurricanes. We basically upped all our numbers by one. Um, originally, it was 19 storms, nine hurricanes, four majors, and the long term average is 14, seven, and three. So we're forecasting you know, a fairly above normal hurricane season this year. Um, two of the big factors, one of the reasons why we increased the numbers is that you know, in April, um, we thought the odds of El Nino were fairly low. Now we think they're even lower than they were in April. So that's the lack of El Nino is one reason. And the other reason is that in early, late March, early April, when we were looking at our early outlook, um, the tropical Atlantic water temperatures were kind of near average, even a little bit cooler than normal. They've anomalously warmed since then. So obviously every year they warm from winter to summer, but they've warmed faster than normal. So now they're running a little bit above normal. And overall, just the Eastern Atlantic. So everywhere from the tropics all the way up to off the coast of say England is much warmer than normal, and that typically leads to a weaker um, subtropical high, weaker Azores high. And when you have that weaker high pressure, that then leads to weaker winds, which means less mixing and churning up of the ocean surface, which leads to additional warming in the tropical Atlantic uh, for the peak of the season. But obviously you just bumped it up a little bit, and last year was 21 storms. 
and this year has been kind of loosely characterized as similar to last year. Should we read anything into the fact that you're slightly under last year? Well, I would say overall we're above last year for most metrics. It was last year was, um, so on average about, it's about 40 to 50% of all storms that get named reach hurricane strength. Last year was only a third. Um, we had 21 storms. We only had seven hurricanes, but interestingly of those seven, four were major. So we had a lot of weak storms and then a few really, really high powered ones. Obviously the one most people are probably most familiar with from last year was Hurricane Ida, which obviously right. was uh, devastating for South Florida, or South Florida, devastating for Louisiana as a category four hurricane. Right, right. Now, well, speaking of last year, it was going gangbusters through September or early October, I, I guess it was, right? And then, uh, which was super unexpected at the time, uh, it just kind of shot off. Do you, what do you think happened? Have you looked yeah. back at that? Yeah, and I mean, you know, we can kind of say what happened, but trying to figure out exactly why it happened is, is another challenge. So basically, you know, kind of the historical thing that we say is, okay, you know, it was we had an La Nina last year, so colder water in the eastern and central tropical Pacific. Typically, that means less wind shear in the Caribbean into the tropical Atlantic. And so I talk about that all the time. You know, last year in 2020 was a great example. La Nina, super active late season, five major hurricanes in October and November. Last year, you know, La Nina, busy start of the season through September. We thought, you know, here we go again, another busy end of the season. And the season really shut off uh, very quickly. And so, you know, there was basically an, a, a low pressure and high high or high altitude, so basically an upper level low pressure area that caused a lot of shear um, in the Caribbean, and it was very persistent. It really just didn't move for several weeks. And so the question is, you know, why did that develop? And I think that's a bit unclear um, exactly as to why that that upper level low pressure system kind of built in and just didn't move. I mean, sometimes. Often the latitude weather patterns, you know, you'll, you'll get a low pressure, but then high pressure will kick it out. But this one was just very, very persistent. And, you know, last year, not only did we not have any storms in the Caribbean late in the season, there was only, I think, one area that the Hurricane Center ever even monitored there. And that was like a 10% chance. I mean, there was just, it was like crickets there, whereas obviously 2020, it was like, you know, there were waves upon waves just crashing into the tropical or into the Caribbean. When yeah, the poor people in Nicaragua uh, got one monster hurricane after the other, Nicaragua and uh, Honduras. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So that upper level low essentially created hostile upper level winds uh, across the Caribbean. I mean, you know, these things happen, right? Sometimes the atmosphere stalls and we have a drought and sometimes we have floods because it just rains every day and things like that happen. So I guess to some degree you can write it up to one of those things. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, we talk about, you know, the really typical relationship between El Nino and La Nina, and you say La Nina typically reduces shear, and the signal is strongest in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And last year, you look at the shear, and it was like a little bit below across most of the tropical Atlantic and the Caribbean, it was above <laughs> normal. And most of that imprint was October, but the Caribbean last year was... We had some deep, we had some storms down there early. We had Grace, and then we had Ida. But then the season in the Caribbean was very, very quiet. So it was kind of like the opposite of 2020 from that perspective, where we had some activity in the Eastern Atlantic, but a lot of the storms in 2020 really didn't ramp up until they got farther west. And obviously, the end of 2020 was an interesting year because through September we had 23 named storms, which is you know a tremendous number of storms, but we only had two major hurricanes. And so the idea was, you know. From a seasonal forecast perspective, I thought we were going to have a bust because we had forecast a whole lot of storms and we forecast 
12 hurricanes. Um, and then the season just went nuts at the end. It was extremely busy. So um, it, it's one of those things where we have these relationships that work, but there also are other factors that sometimes come in that we can't necessarily explore or predict on a seasonal timescale. So if, if that hadn't happened last year, that it, it shut off, it feels like we would have gone well into the supplemental list of names. And I think I hear you saying that at least so far, it doesn't look like that pattern was forecastable ahead of time. Like there weren't obvious clues that something like that was going to happen. No, no. I mean, I look at like the sub-seasonal predictions that we put out. So we do seasonal forecasts that we've already talked about. But we also, during the peak months of the season, do shorter forecasts. We do two-week forecasts that we put out every two weeks, um, trying to predict how busy the next two weeks are going to be. And the reason that we do that is because just because you have an above-normal season doesn't mean that the entire season is going to have above-average activity. You can have quiet periods during an active season or very active periods during a quiet season. And so when I look back at some of that, you know, even late September through October, there were some hints that early October should quiet down for a bit, but then we thought it would come right back mm -hmm. and it just never did. Yeah. yeah, I remember that you and I talked about that. Exactly. Well, how about, yeah. how about all these uh, shorty storms that, you know, last <laughs> a day or two? Do, do, do they goof you up somehow and in terms of your seasonal forecast or you just assume that we're going to have a few of them? So let's add a couple of numbers onto onto our you know baseline numbers. Yeah, so if you look at the ratio of, so basically what we predict every year, the, the primary metric that we forecast is a metric called accumulated cyclone energy. And that's kind of a geeky metric that accounts for frequency, intensity, and duration. And so weak short-lived storms, like the shorties that you mentioned, are basically almost um, inconsequential at, 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 at additive forces to the asymmetric. They're just right. very, very small numbers. Because they're not, not very strong and they don't last very long. And, and those two things go together to make that ace number, right? Yeah, so ace is basically, mm -hmm. it basically takes the wind speed and squares it. So if you think about it, a storm like a Hurricane Irma or a Hurricane Ivan or something that's out there for seemingly forever is a very intense hurricane, generates tremendous amounts of ace. So last year, the biggest ace generator was Hurricane Sam, which no one really remembers, but it was a, it was a major hurricane for over a week, which, you know, in baseball, if you're talking about baseball, it's not the Joe DiMaggio 56 game history, but that's probably at least a 35, 40 game history kind of storm. I mean, that's. Yeah, it was like bizarre, as a matter of fact, how, how long it maintained its strength, kind of turned up into the middle of the Atlantic and not too far from Bermuda before it ended up way up by Nova Scotia. Yeah, and it was just, it maintained its intensity for quite a while. But anyway, yeah. getting back to your question, basically the when we forecast now, the ratio of named storms to hurricanes is just a little bit higher. So basically our primary metric we forecast is ACE, and then we back out the other metrics from that. But, you know, this year we're, say, forecasting 20 storms, 10 hurricanes. If this were, if we were had the same, you know, 15, 20 years ago, probably just said, you know, like 18 storms and 10 hurricanes, say something like that. And so these short-lived storms, they are storms. I don't want to, I want people to understand these are real storms, mm -hmm. but it's just, we have better technology now to observe them. We have better satellites. We have better kind of diagnostic tools. So these are real storms. It's just that even more than 20 years ago, we just didn't have the technology to be able to observe them. And uh, Chris Lancey at the National Hurricane Center has written extensively on this, a couple of peer-reviewed articles, a lot of blog posts. Um, so there is a lot of information. If you just search like short-lived Atlantic or short-lived theme storms, you'll see a lot of discussion on that. Yeah. And so it, it has made the numbers go up, which actually gets us to the, okay, what is the real average, right? Because the average that we use goes back to 1991. And clearly through the 90s, 
their technology was very fundamentally different than starting in about 2000 or the early 2000s. And then in the 2010s, again, there's another leap. So we're kind of two steps behind for a third of the time that 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 is being averaged. That's correct. And so that's why, you know, we forecast a number of storms. We really advise people to look maybe more at the number of hurricanes or the number of major hurricanes or ACE if you want to be a good weather geek. Um, <laughs> you got to get a better idea of exactly how busy a hurricane season is, because if you simply just look at the number of storms, it can sometimes give you kind of a skewed view as to how you know, busy the hurricane season was. And so for a good example I give of that is 2004, we had 15 storms. In 2013, we had 14. So if you think about it from a named storm perspective, you'd say, eh, you know, they're pretty even seasons. But obviously, mm -hmm. anyone up to 2004 say that was a heck of a season. You know, yeah, right. um, overall, if you look at like accumulated cyclone energy, it was about nine times as much as 2013, which had only two hurricanes. Right, right. Let's take a quick pause. We'll be right back on the Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So the forecast scheme that, that you use these days, is, and it's changed over your time, actually, and of course, significantly since Dr. Bill Gray started it almost 40 years ago now, which is hard to believe. So is there new technology, new data? So, you know, what's happened to cause you to evolve the scheme? Yeah, and so there's there's a few factors. So one, um, you know, I got asked this in a presentation I gave earlier today is I mentioned it was called it's called the siege of time. And so what that has to do with is when you're building a model, if you're doing, say, a statistical model, so you're saying basically, okay, these climate predict predictors work well at forecasting hurricane seasons, That'll, they may work great for a while and suddenly they stop working. And that's because the atmosphere ocean functions as a single unit. So if various climate patterns change, then maybe what was used to be a good predictor might not work anymore. Um, so that's why with the seasonal forecast, we don't just say develop a model and then put it on a shelf. And so if we look back at what Dr. Gray was using in the early 1980s, one of his big predictors was El Nino. We still use that today. Everybody doing seasonal forecast pretty much uses that. You talk, look at NOAA or any of the other forecasting centers. But one of the other predictors that he was using was known as the uh, quasi-biennial oscillation, which is winds way, way high up in the atmosphere, um, 50, 60,000 feet. And that worked great as a predictor for about 10 years and then basically suddenly fell apart. And as to why that fell apart and didn't work anymore, I think is still an open question. Like we, there were papers published on it. We've looked at it and some of it may have been it just it kind of randomly happened to sync up with El Nino for a while and maybe it did work. And then due to climate change, maybe some natural variability, it just no longer is as important. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we've kind of, these forecasts have evolved. Another is just that the data we have now, the historical data that we have now is better. And frankly, it's interesting because we've kind of gotten snobby. So when Bill Gray started these forecasts, he built the data on 1950 to 1982. And now when I look at the data that I, I start with 1982, because that's when we got better resolution sea surface temperature data. So, you know, it's, it's one of the battles that we're always fighting is you build your models on more years of data where the data's has more issues or do you build it on fewer realizations where you have better data but 
you have fewer overall hurricane seasons. Um, and that's kind of a battle that we're always fighting. So we have still a statistical model, which is very similar to what Dr. Gray would have used, whereby basically we say, okay, what kind of areas in April, May worked well at forecasting hurricane seasons? So for the June outlook. But one thing we do now that Dr. Gray did not have available to him in the early 80s was we use um, basically what's known as a hybrid model. So we use climate models. And so these models are forecasting, you know, three, six, 12 months into the future. These aren't the same, necessarily the exact same models that are forecasting, you know, climate change. They're forecasting the climate for the next several months. And these climate models now can actually forecast, not necessarily the weather, you know, seven, you know, 46 days from now, but they can forecast monthly averages reasonably well. So what we do is we use these climate model forecasts of winds, temperatures, pressures, um, and then say, okay, if assuming that forecast is correct, if say if the model is forecasting, you know, a warmer tropical Atlantic, how would that then interact with, or how would that then dictate how much storm activity we get during the hurricane season? And the nice thing with these climate models is they're also built on historical data. So we can kind of see how good these models are. We can see over the last, say, 30 to 40 years, how well the models would have worked and have worked in real time at predicting um, overall levels of um, basically overall large-scale environments so the water temperatures and pressures and wind patterns. So we use three different ones of those. We use a forecast from the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, or ECMWF. We use one from the Met Office from the United Kingdom, and then one from the Japan Meteorological Agency, or JMA. So we have these additional tools. That's something that just Dr. Ray couldn't have used in the early 80s because climate models were really, really, really in their infancy back then. Yeah, and actually, those the models are uh, pretty amazing. And this year... The European model, the UK Met model, and the Japanese model all seem to kind of agree, right? Basically saying the same thing and, and uh, basically in the range of what you and Noah and, and other uh, people are forecasting. When, when you look at the retrospective uh, made of those models or where they go back and try and forecast, okay, how about 2013, for mm -hmm. example, right? Do they sometimes like violently disagree with each other? It seems like I've been looking at them for such a short period of time. It seems like they've kind of lined up here these last few years. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, in, in retrospect, do they, do they you know, no, or, is, that, is that always what happens? Well, and so, you know, I only look at it for the certain predictors that I'm using for our forecast. And in general, they agree reasonably well. And so say, for example, in 2013, the Which was a big all, bust year, right? That was a, a huge bust year. And so, yeah. you know, when I look at the, so these hybrid models where we use a climate model to forecast the environment, they forecast an environment that maybe would have called for more of an average season. So, you know, our forecast was a really big season and nothing happened. Mm. And now those models are saying, okay, maybe more of an average season. So instead of say having a two, two category bus or went above average and it was below, it would have been more average and below. So it wouldn't have been as bad as it was um, had we had those tools today. And also I should add, we also that statistical model that we use for our June forecast, mm -hmm. retrospectively for 2013 would have called for about an average season. And so, you know, there are these, there are these years that are quote unquote, either overachievers or underachievers. So Basically, the idea is, is that, you know, we're basically looking at the large scale environment and overall, if the waters are warm, the pressures are low, the shear is low, that should lead to a, a more active season. But there's caveats to that. I mean, in general, you can get a storm that kind of finds one little pocket of a conducive environment and we'll just go bananas, even if the environment everywhere else is is, is really harsh. Hurricane or, Andrew, or, for example. You can have, 
storms, you know, just happen to encounter one little area that's unfavorable and get shredded. Or if you have a lot of storms, one storm can basically cause a lot of shear and shear off everything that's behind it. We had that it was a good example of that um, was in 2020, where we had Hurricane Teddy, which was this big, huge storm in the middle of the Atlantic, had this really big outflow pattern and just sheared several waves that came off behind it. And so there's a reason why with these forecasts, you know, they're, they're skillful. They're not, it's not like they're useless, but they're not going to be able to predict perfectly every year. And for example, 2018, you know, the, we were borderline El Nino, the tropical Atlantic was kind of cool. And yet we still ended up with an above normal season. We had Florence, which was a fairly long lived major hurricane. And then Michael late, you know, the environment where it formed, there was a lot of shear in the Gulf of Mexico, right. but it found one little spot where it was actually like in perfectly located next. So basically perfectly located near the upper low, but not too close such that it actually helped the system instead of shearing it apart. Um, and so those are the challenges with seasonal forecasting and that you will be able to tell you something, but we can't, when you start looking at the nuances of individual storms and whether they form or don't form or intensify or don't intensify, that's why there's, there's always going to be margins of error with these forecasts. Yeah. And looking at the graphs in your paper of the various models of the European model and the UK model and the Japanese model, as you go look, looking at the years in the past, Many years, they're amazingly good. Like they show a big peak and there's some kind of big peak. Maybe not the exact number, but the trend is right. But then kind of a, a number of years, it's just the opposite. I mean, they really are just, you know, they just don't have the idea. It's not, they don't have the flavor at all. Is that, you know, is that, this is just the march of, uh, of progress and technology and understanding this, or or do you have any idea what's going on that makes you know looking at the European or the Japanese or whatever suddenly there it's completely wrong? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, especially one of the years that if you look historically that we didn't do great at forecasting in real time, and if you look at the models now, still have a hard time getting correct with 2004, which obviously for anyone living in Florida remembers it was a super active season. Right, but, four storms, right, yeah. Yeah, exactly, but we were kind of moving in towards an El Nino. Mm -hmm. um, and so once we got to October of 2004, the atmosphere suddenly was like, oh, it's El Nino, and the shear really ramped up and the season was done. Right. But it took a, it, for some reason, you know, the it didn't it didn't respond right away to the Pacific forcing. And so we had, you know, this really we had this window of about seven, eight weeks where it was just, you know, one right after the other, storm after storm. And so as the season goes, it was an extremely busy season. And I believe we forecast, you know, a little bit above normal, but we really didn't get 2004 mm -hmm. as great. And I don't think really anybody did either. I don't think people were maybe calling for a little bit above, but not nearly the level of storm activity that we saw. And re even retrospectively, like you noted with the various models for that year, either both the statistical model that we use or the various hybrid models, I think the models kind of struggled at figuring out just how conducive the Atlantic would be, probably somewhat due to the, the fact that we were moving towards that El Nino event. I haven't really dove into detail and looked at exactly what was going on with the models in 2004, but that certainly would be interesting retrospectively. One of the challenges too is that, so these climate models are updated almost every year, um, right. especially the UK MET and the JM, especially UK MET is updated a ton. So basically the models are built to forecast kind of the large scale environment. And so sometimes even when they have a quote unquote upgrade of the model, it may actually not work as well at forecasting the particular areas that we're looking at. 
So we've seen that occasionally with when, when the model is upgraded. It actually does a better job overall, but might not do better for the little for the regions that we're actually predicting. So that's one of the challenges with this is even with an upgraded model, it does better overall, but it might not actually do better for what we're trying to predict. Well, also, I mean, it's just intrinsically more difficult because if you look, what, statistically, historically, uh, if the El Nino is like very strong, then we're going to have fewer hurricanes. If the La Nina is very strong, we're going to have more hurricanes. But if we're in the middle somewhere around the, the neutral zone, plus or minus, it can go either way, right? I mean, it's historically some years it's, yeah, it's plus, it's, it's toward uh, El Nino, but it still goes like crazy. Other years, it's the other way where it, it seems a little cool. It seems like, okay, this should be conducive, but then it's not really so much. So it's those years, I think, that where the El Nino forcing is not, or El Nino or La Nina forcing is not strong that, uh, you know, yeah, we, those, are, those are hard yeah. years. Those, those kind of yeah. basically like those neutral years where you don't have El Nino or La Nina, or you have one, but it's, it's weak. It's, it's kind of marginal right on the cusp. Then it matters a lot what's going on, even more so what's going on in the Atlantic. But then I think there's also just a larger, quote unquote, bust potential. I mean, if you have a really strong El Nino, I don't really care what's going on in the Atlantic. You're not going to get squat. I mean, you, you, should, you might get something, but you're not going to get very much. Right. Whereas if you have a pretty strong La Nina, that should kind of dominate the signal. But if you're in the middle, then it, you know, then it becomes a, a more challenging problem. And if you look historically at kind of oftentimes when our forecast has a big bust, it's when you get kind of more of these marginal, you know, El Nino events. I mean, so 97, we had a big bust and that was a huge El Nino. And I think, I think we just didn't have the technology necessarily to observe it. I think now with the models that we have now, 97, I think we would successfully forecast a below normal season because, we have just better observations of the Pacific and we would have seen that one coming. Whereas in 97, I think we just did, I think we just, I, I wasn't there for that one, but I think we just kind of missed what was going on. We just didn't have as good observations as we have now. Well, and the predictor didn't, didn't, didn't pick it up. It wasn't a direct uh, kind of prediction. Like we, we have more direct predictions now. Hey, Brian here. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back on the Fox weather tracking the tropics podcast in just a moment. So with all forecasting, there's limits, of course, and, and because we're trying to predict the atmosphere, which is a quintessentially chaotic system, <laughs> right? And by definition with the chaotic systems, you can never uh, forecast with 100% accuracy. It's, it's a kind of a fundamental rule. Uh, so I think it's pretty clear with day-to-day with -day forecasts or even uh, hurricane forecasts five or seven days in the future that as we get higher resolution data that, and models at higher resolution that those forecasts will get incrementally better. How much better is an open question, but will get incrementally better. But what could you use to make better seasonal scale, you know, predictions. What kind of technology? I don't. It doesn't feel like it's just the resolution of the you know day to day weather models. Yeah, and so there's there's a few different things. And so one thing I think you know I noticed this year that I, I didn't think I paid as much attention to in the past was the models are getting better at forecasting the next few weeks. So again, not necessarily forecasting 23 days from now, but like weekly averages out to maybe a month. And so now it kind of gives us a window, say, for this forecast 
okay, it used to be who, who the heck knows what's going to happen in June, whereas now it's like we don't know what's going to happen in June. We have some ideas of what means, what's going to happen in June. So, for example, you know, in the Pacific Ocean right now, we there's fairly weak trade winds blowing across the Pacific. And when the winds there are weaker, that's often when you see warming and you might see a trend away from La Nina. But you can look at the model forecast further out and see that they're forecasting a really, really strong surge of trade winds towards the end of June. And it's in all the different models. And you can look at some of the kind of the physics and kind of understand why they'd be predicting that. And again, you know, maybe if we were to talk in a month, we'd be like, what a horrible forecast. The trade winds just died and we have a big El Nino or something. But in general, we have we have better having that knowledge of better like what's going to happen in the next few weeks does give you some increased confidence okay you know it looks pretty unlikely like this this westerly wind event we have now is going to cause too much of a change in the pacific ocean given the really strong winds that are likely coming in the next few weeks also in the atlantic we can kind of see what their patterns are right now and kind of look and see what the, how those are trending and they look towards the end of june to be trending towards kind of overall more conducive conditions over africa just kind of locking in more towards the modes that we typically see with an above normal season, low pressures in the Atlantic. And so again, not to say that that's 100% what's going to happen, but having that information is useful. I think another thing that I really, really like is, so our statistical model formerly was built on a reanalysis, which is effectively um, basically a best estimate of what things look like historically. Um, those reanalysis products were not available in real. The one we were using from the European Center was not available in real time. So we had to kind of estimate it from other data, whereas now it's available pretty much in real time. So I can use the same data set for the historical period and use it for the real time estimates, which makes it just more, it's better calibrated. And so when I look back historically, if I had the data from the real time, if I had the data from the reanalysis, in real time, I would have actually had better seasonal forecasts. And now it's nice because we actually have that data available in real time. And so, you know, one of the things that we look at and people think it's probably think it's funny is, you know, better the better historical data that we have, the better we can calibrate our models. So, so I think with time as these historical products get better, um, as we have more years of data that go into them, that will hopefully, hopefully also refine these seasonal forecasts. And so kind of my goal with this is that, you know, our August seasonal forecast shows pretty good skill. You're getting correlations of 0.8 or so. And I think that's probably about as good as we're going to do, given the chaoticness of the system. And just, you know, there's only so much we can do on a seasonal time scale. But what I want to do is get that August forecast skill in July and our current July forecast skill in June and the June forecast skill in April. And I think that's where some of these climate model predictions can help us get there by basically saying, okay, you know, say June 1st. I don't know what June's going to look like exactly, but now as supposed to saying it's anybody's guess, now I can say, okay, overall, it looks like June is going to be, you know, more or less conducive. And for example, I can give you this example. So on May 1st, I estimated what the various predictors that we use in our statistical forecast would look like for May, just looking, eyeballing the, the various climate model forecasts. And the aggregate of those the ACE came out to the exact number that what I eyeballed it as. And so that's that's a sign of basically just that these models, you know, there were some kind of some predictors were a little more, a little better, some were a little worse, but overall, when you average them out, it came out to exactly what it was. So, you know, hopefully in June that we can do a similar kind of analysis to give us 
again, not that we know exactly, but it does give us some increased confidence. I think having these climate model forecasts going out a few weeks with, with some level of skill is is definitely a big improvement. And I, I wish Dr. Gray were here to to have seen some of these things because I he was he was a pretty big skeptic about climate models. He was certainly um, <laughs> on climate change timescales, but also even on like being able to forecast a month or two months out. But you know, the proof's in the pudding. And again, since they're built also, since they use Heincast and historical data, we can kind of see how good they are. Um, and since they're using full model physics, you can't kind of quote unquote fake the results. I mean, it's, the model physics is what it is. So you can kind of see, okay, the, the physics of the atmosphere ocean aren't gonna change. So if they was able to predict the past, it should be able to predict the future and generally does a reasonably good job. Yeah, I think, uh, well, so some important things there. One is that the ideas, as you said, uh, but really to put a fine point on it, those cl the climate models don't try and predict what the weather is going to be on June 27th. But they, they can give an idea of the general state of the atmosphere. And so that's what you're, you're really looking for, because you're not trying to predict where the hurricane might be or what kind of storm might be developing on June 27th or any particular date. Anyway, you're looking at the kind of aggregate of the favorability of, of the pattern. And that's what climate models do both in the month time frame and in the multi-year and multi-decade time frame. They, they're not trying to... So that was, I think, where Bill diverged with, with what we now know is to be the case, that it's not, yes, we can't forecast with certainty what next weekend is going to be like, but we can say something skillful about the future. I think that's really where we come down, right? Yeah, and, and there's so there's... Um, basically, there's oscillations in the tropics. One of the big ones that people may have heard of is this Madden Julian oscillation, which is basically equatorially propagating thunderstorm activity that goes around the globe every 30 to 70 days ish, um, except when it's weak. And then, it's, then yeah. you don't have that. When you have that kind of a signal, it can really, you know, it, it's not perfect. And I mean, but it gives you, it can kind of give you clues as to what's going to happen the next few weeks. And that's kind of what we're looking for. Again, it's not, you know, if you look at, the next two weeks and then you verify how good it was. It's not going to be perfect, but it's not going to necessarily be horrible either. And so that's kind of what we're looking for is just, you know, anything, anything with skill is going to be better than just, you know, the, the movie before, which is just kind of like a shrug your shoulders and guess what's going to happen. You knew, you knew what had happened up to that date, but that's it. Mm -hmm. Whereas now it's like, okay, I don't know for sure, but you know, in the forecast now, I actually put in like climate model forecasts of the pressure field in the Atlantic and said, okay, you know, it's probably the next two weeks the pressure forecast isn't going to be horrible. It'll probably be reasonably similar to what to what actually occurs. And you know, and so I think again, it's not a slam dunk, but the fact that we can see the next few weeks approximately how things are going to shape up does give us some um, additional confidence and some additional knowledge that we just didn't have. You know, um, even probably 10, 15 years ago. And with time, I think you're right. I mean, I don't think it's going to be you know. 10 years from now, the models are going to be having a, a six-week forecast of low-level winds that's, that's spot on. But even if it gets incrementally better, that, that will be helpful. And I have to say, one thing that um, that I saw at the um, American Meteorological Society tropical meeting that, that, Brian, you were also at, I'm guessing you were at these two, was just the thing that really blew me away. And so we had the meeting canceled in 2020 because of COVID in 2021. It was virtual. Um, and so this was the first year a lot of us had seen each other in person in four years, was just, you know, the age old discussion was, you know, the track forecasts are getting better for individual hurricanes, but the intensity forecasts, eh, they were kind of marginal, you know, like right. they were better than no skill, but they hadn't really improved. And in the last few years, right. 
it was just remarkable how much that's improved. And I think that's that's really exciting. I think that would be something Dr. Gray would have been very excited to see was just how it's not that they're perfect, but that we're actually getting better at the intensity prediction is right. I think is quite exciting. And I think, you know, in the next because when they had the they have this project called the Hurricane Forecast Improvement Project that was a big government funded project to improve hurricane intensity predictions. And when I saw their metrics, I was like, oh man, they'll they'll never be able to hit it. And they're actually probably gonna get pretty close. And I think that's really exciting and a testament to a lot of work by a lot of really good um, model developers, as well as just improvements of understanding of how hurricanes actually tick. Yeah, and the increased computer power has come into play there, all those things coming together. I want to go back to the El Nino thing just for folks that might be uh, listening and, and don't understand all the words. But So the idea is that trade winds coming out of the east to the west, when they're strong in the Pacific, they push the warm water in the Pacific over to the west side of the Pacific. And when they're weak, some of that warm water comes back. And so with this La Nina, it's cold water in the eastern Pacific. So if we have weak trade winds, then that cold water pool will tend to decrease and, and the effect of La Nina will decrease. And in the short term, we've had this westerly wind burst, the opposite of trade winds, which everybody was, uh-oh, is that going to affect the La Nina? But the models indicate the answer to that is no, at least for a while. I mean, we don't know about later in, in the hurricane season, but for a while. Am I, am I right? Yeah, that's correct. And so, you know, kind of the idea is that you have you get that westerly wind forcing, and that will actually basically transport that warm ocean water over by Indonesia and transport it eastward. But if you then have a re-strengthening of those trade winds and the winds come stronger out of the east, it'll kind of just attenuate it. So you'll maybe see a little bit of warming, but it's fairly marginal. Right. Um, there's a lot more like complicated physics. I don't think even <laughs> I understand completely what the heck's going on. But basically the idea is, is that Overall, the last year or so, the trade winds in the near the International Bay Line have been extremely strong. It's been very, very persistent. And after this brief hiatus, it looks like they're going to come back with a vengeance. So we'll probably see some warming in the short term, but then in the longer term, we'll probably see that warming, you know, be be ameliorated at least somewhat. Again, you know, a model forecast 30 days out isn't going to be perfect, but likely we will see a trade wind surge um, just given the overall kind of climate patterns that that, that we that we're currently observing. Hey, Brian here. I'll be back with Phil Klotzbach after this quick break. So we're in our third year now in a row of La Nina or La Nina-esque uh, type hurricane season. In other words, the, that water has stayed cool, so-called triple dip uh, La Nina. Uh, and, you know, and so that means that the wind patterns have generally favored that. They've been fairly strong on average out of the east, pushing the warm water to the west side of the Pacific. So apparently, you know, this happens a number of times every hundred years, uh, five or six times or something. Although I don't remember off the top of my head uh, it happening. Well, what do you make of of this persistent La Nina? And is it just a random thing or is there some kind of forcing here that maybe this is a hint that we're going to have more La Ninas and uh, which of course generally lead to more hurricanes. Yeah. So, you know, looking back historically, um, if you look at August through October, the peak three months of the hurricane season, and you look at the oceanic Nino index, which is how NOAA declares um, El Nino or La Nina, we've historically had two other triple dip La Ninas where we basically had La Nina conditions during August through October. It'll be 1954 to 1956 in 1998 through 2000. If you use a wintertime definition, 
it was 73 to 70, December of 73 to 75, or January of 74 mm -hmm. to 76. And then that 90, 99 to 2001 um, shows up on either one. Um, but if you look historically, we've actually trended more towards La Nina, interestingly enough, for over like at least the last 30 years. And so we actually published a paper recently looking at trends in global tropical cyclone activity, because we obviously get hurricanes in the Atlantic. We also get them in the Eastern Pacific. We get them in the Western Pacific, where they're known as typhoons. We also get them in the Indian Ocean and in the South Pacific. And if you look globally, the last 30 years, we've seen a more La Nina-like environment. And while the Atlantic hurricane activity has gone up, the Pacific activity, which basically responds oppositely to El Nino, has gone down. And since the Pacific Ocean is larger, has a really large uh, pool of really warm water, Overall, the Pacific in general was a busier basin. Overall, the storm activity globally the last 30 plus years has actually gone down. Um, and so that's actually opposite of what most of the climate models say we should see with climate changes, we should see more El Ninos, and we're actually seeing more La Ninos. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion on that topic right now. Actually, next week I'm going to a tropical cycle and climate change workshop um, in Key Largo, and I believe there's actually that's on the agenda is discussing, you know, um, Climate models say more El Ninos, reality or observations at least the last 30 years say basically fewer El Ninos, weaker El Ninos, more La Ninos. Not that we won't have them or that we have them, but just that overall it's been more La Nina-like. And so trying to figure out is that just, is this just kind of a natural cycle where we'll go back or is this something where the climate models just aren't handling um, some of the physics of the ocean atmosphere system. And obviously that has really big implications for how things may change in the future because a lot of the climate model projections show kind of marginal changes in the Atlantic, um, and especially the Caribbean where we see the big El Nino-La Nina signal. Whereas if in reality we go more towards La Nina, the Caribbean could potentially be like the canary in the coal mine. They could be the area that's really under the gun because La Nina's in the Caribbean really ramp up um, really ramps up the hurricane activity in the Caribbean. So that to me is a big question that we need to answer, um, at least for the next say 20, 30 years. At some point we should reach some sort of climate equilibrium state, but that could very well be after you and I are both uh, long retired. <laughs> Not doing long this anymore. <laughs> exactly, so there's, there's really big questions on this topic, but at least the last 30 years, we can pretty definitively say we've trended more towards La Nina. Again, not um, that, it's, that it never happens, but just that overall, more frequent La Ninas, less frequent El Ninos, and the La, the La Nina we've had the last few years has been remarkably persistent. And we had a huge El Nino in 2015, but then since then, we had kind of a brief array of El Nino territory in 2018-19, but overall it's just been kind of La Nina and cool neutral-ish for most of the time since uh, 2015. Yeah, although I, I must say, indeed, we've, we've had this kind of La Nina pattern and lots of storms. Obviously, in terms of numbers, lots of named storms, lots of hurricanes in terms of numbers. But if you go back and you look at the 1940s in South Florida, where it was five category four storms in, in six years, right? Or you, the, the giant hurricanes of the 1920s and uh, that hit Florida and, and the 30s, you know, that hit uh, Cuba and the Bahamas and, and were in the area. Uh, you know, we haven't seen that so much. I mean, even the strong storms were not these giant like 1926 Miami hurricanes, 1928 uh, Puerto Rico and and uh, Okeechobee hurricane and uh, other you know devastating storms. So it's an interesting thing to me that indeed we've we've trended toward this La Nina, but we haven't seemed at least in terms of landfalling storms. 
we haven't seemed to trend toward you know more super big powerful uh, hurricanes. Is, is that just a, an empirical observation, or do you think that's a valid well, observation? I mean, I think the U.S. has gotten. I mean, not to say the U.S. hasn't had significant storms, and certainly Louisiana has been just right. run through the ring for the last couple of years. But you know, you think about Dorian, and Dorian to me, I mean that. That thing, if Dorian had hit Florida at the intensity it hit Abaco, um, you know, that would have been just cataclysmic for Florida. Right. It was a Category 5 hurricane stalled. Um, so yeah, I, think I was in would, Miami. Uh, it felt like it was, you know, three feet away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, and, and we weren't even under a, a watch or, we, you know, nothing in, in Miami. I mean, it was a fantastically well forecast uh, yeah. event, but yeah. I mean, with the dread for the people in Abaco that were going through it was uh, palpable at that time. Yeah. And so I think a lot of it is, you know, normally if you look at historical cat fours and fives that hit the Bahamas, they do not end well for Florida. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, usually Florida gets hit really hard. Like you mentioned, the Lake Okeechobee hurricane, the great Miami hurricane. I mean, these things in general caused really significant impacts on the Bahamas before they got to Florida. Um, and so if you think about the hurricanes, of the last, say, we'll start maybe in 2017. I mean, you had storms like Irma, which obviously Irma was bad for Florida, but you know, three or four days earlier when the models had a Cat 5 plowing into downtown Miami, or the alternative scenario, which was a storm going up the West Coast, you know, even had Irma made landfall, you know, 20 miles, 30 miles farther north up the West Coast of Florida. I mean, that thing would have brought an insane amount of surge into Fort Myers and Naples. And because it made landfall where it did, they were on the weaker side of the storm. So basically, remember all the water like blowing out of Tampa Bay, like, and basically the storm was inland. So when the water came back, it didn't come come back in as as a torrent. Like it just, if you had told me a week before Irma hit the hit the U.S. that it would be like what was it a forty or fifty billion? Like it was a bad storm, but just it could have been so much worse had very small things changed. And so the U.S. not say that they've you know, they haven't had any significant impacts, but compared with what it, things could have been in terms of like a financial devastation, um, things certainly could have been worse with very small track changes to a lot of these storms. I mean, yeah, really, in, the, in the Irma case, really, it, it that little bit of difference where it hit Cuba. Correct. That, yes. that did two things. One, that was that disrupted it some. Second, that delayed it some because it took the longer path to Florida and that allowed the dry air to come in and actually dry out the second half of the storm. So there was no strong wind to blast the water back into Tampa Bay, even at category yeah. one yeah. strength. Right. So, yeah, yeah. so basically, it was a lot of different things that came into effect that basically saved Florida. For, I mean, it was still bad. I don't say Florida didn't have any impacts, but right. it could have been much, much worse. So I think in a way you're, you're right. I think a lot of it is not that there haven't been horrible storms around. It's just that a lot of them have either made landfall in areas that don't have massive population. So it's been really bad for the people that are there, but we're not seeing these enormous price tags. I mean, you are seeing high price tags, but obviously you think about Ida last year, you know, the eastern edge of the eye wall basically scraped the western part of the metro area. And I saw that coming into New Orleans for the meeting. You saw blue tarps. But once you got into more downtown, you didn't see the blue tarps. So not to say New Orleans had no impacts, but had Ida gone in 30 miles farther east, then we would have seen a lot more impacts. So that price tag would have been a lot higher because obviously, you know, the, the damage that a storm causes is a function, obviously, of how strong the storm is, but also the population that is impacted right. by the storm. And certainly even with Laura in 2020, you know, it was a horrible storm for Lake Charles from a wind perspective. But had Laura tracked just a little bit farther to the west, all that storm surge that went into the bayous and where 
very few people live, that would have all gone up into Lake Charles. So Lake Charles obviously had a tremendous amount of wind and was really hit hard by the storm, but the surge was not nearly as bad as it, as it could have been had it Jake and just Yeah, essentially they had no surge as far, that far north in Lake Charles. Correct, but, yeah. But yeah, so, because the, the storm was just far enough, I mean, just far enough, the, yeah, east, the, the, the <laughs> water didn't go in there, it went into Cameron Parish and... And I mean, it was a tremendous surge in in uh, Cameron Palace, and the forecasts on that were really good. So we talked a lot about um, El Nino and La Nina, well, with good reason, because it actually that's really the fundamental driver, right? That's the big driver of what happens in I mean, weather around the world, but specifically in uh, in hurricane forecasting. So, yeah, so, what it, it comes, so it, it's a very fine, if I understand what I've learned from you, actually, it's, it's, uh, it's not a, a strong signal that pushes it one way or the other in a given year or many years. So does it come down to having more data in the Pacific, do you think, or higher resolution models, or is El Nino or La Nina just always going to be a, a hard thing to forecast? I mean, I think, you know, in a way, so El Nino and La Nina, if it's going to transition, does so during the Northern Hemisphere spring, which makes for fun when you're trying to do seasonal forecasts because that's when all the forecasts come out. And there's a lot lower model scale, and it's called this um, El Nino predictability barrier, which is, uh, and you see it, if you look at any climate model forecast, you see the scale always basically tanks, not goes to zero, but goes a lot lower in April, May, and then comes back. I mean, when you get to the fall, so if you're forecasting the Southern Hemisphere, it's a whole lot easier for, from an El Nino, La Nina perspective. And some of it is just because climatologically, that's when your trade winds tend to be weaker, that when basically the ocean can respond to these kind of westerly wind events more strongly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's just, a, there is definitely some almost, almost stochasticity or just kind of noise in these forecasts. So I don't think even, you know, if we're doing these 30 years from now that we'll be saying, oh, you know, the climate model in April says it's going to be an El Nino and there's no spread and the models all agree. Like there's just, there's going to be a lot of these, whether you get El Nino or La Nina is wind forcing and that's driven by the atmosphere, which just has, has some predictability in the tropical atmosphere. You may be able to go out as far as four to five weeks at some points, but if you don't have strong other forcing, it can be even shorter than that. So overall, there's definitely still real challenges at being able to predict um, El Nino and La Nina. And so I think these forecasts will get better with time, but they're certainly never going to be perfect. And let's take a quick break. I'll be back with Phil in just a minute. So back in the 80s, when Dr. Gray uh, started all this and you know settled on the idea that maybe you could predict a, a hurricane season, uh, did he initially connect it with the El Nino-La Nina, like there was the super slow 1983. Something strikes me that that he realized that was an El Nino year and that uh, was part of the understanding that came together at that time. Yeah, and so it's interesting. So he was actually working on it for the Atlantic and at the same time, he actually had a visitor from Australia, Neville Nichols, who was doing similar work looking at Australia um, and being able to do seasonal predictions down there for tropical cyclones. And it's interesting because Australia 
Storms near Australia and the Atlantic kind of have the same response where El Nino knocks down your storms, La Nina increases them, whereas most other places it actually has the opposite relationship. But Neville and Dr. Gray had a lot of conversations about that topic. I think he came out to see issue in 82 or 83. Um, but yeah, so Dr. Gray published a paper, he published two papers in 84. One basically had um, a lot of basically discussing that quasi-biennial oscillation relationship that we talked about earlier, but also really zeroing in on the El Nino. Um, and it was interesting, if you look back at the original paper, um, Dr. Gray was great, he was a great empiricist where he would basically look at effectively, um, he would take the observations and then basically kind of say, oh, so his simple, his model originally was like, okay, average at that point was like six hurricanes, if there's an El Nino subtract, a moderate El Nino subtract two or something like that. It was a very, very kind of simple approach, but he actually didn't increase storm activity for a La Nina, which is decreasing it for an El Nino. Mm. Um, and I think the relationship between some of that may have been that the variability between El Nino and La Nina was seemed to be a little bit less in the 50s, 60s and 70s than it is now. We're getting kind of bigger um, pluses and minuses, deviations. So, so I, think it's I don't remember all this back when I started doing uh, hurricanes. I remember El Nino you know, being a thing. But La Nina was not the thing that it is uh, today. So that is an interesting point. There's absolutely no question about it. The La Nina, La Nina came after El Nino. I mean, you know. We, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, well, just, if you go back to Herbert Real, who was kind of the, the big hurricane guy in the 50s, right. he wrote a tropical meteorology textbook in 1954. And there's no mention of El Nino or La Nina. <laughs> no, in 54. Yeah. Um, and, and it was it was known about them, but I think... I think some of it was the 40s, but El Nino's, La Nina's were a little bit more marginal, as best we can tell. And so maybe they didn't necessarily get it that it was as big of a forcing factor as it was. And I think it was really, I think it was really the 72, 73, but really the 82, 83 El Nino that really got people realizing, holy cow, this can have huge impacts on a lot of things. And then if you look at like, you know, if you just do like a Google Scholar and search El Nino and look at the number of papers that talked about it and you know, 84 versus 83. And even like, it just is growing exponentially. I think people have really realized now how big of a factor it can be. But like you said, I think, especially the last, say, 30, 40 years, La Nina, not to say we haven't had them, but just overall, the La Ninas that we've had, you know, seem to be packing, you know, they're packing a fairly significant punch. Um, so I think some of it is better data. Um, we better observe them now than we used to. And so I think it's also now we can better be able to tie all these things together. So we have observations everywhere now, so we can say, okay, you know, we have La Nina, and then we can say, okay, we have a La Nina, what does the temperature look like everywhere? And you can see, okay, it's, you know, it's core in, you know, Myanmar or something like that. You can do all sorts of things to kind of figure out what goes with what. And same with this Madden-Julian oscillation, which is a shorter timescale thing. Like, I mean, now it's like everything you can tie to it because we have all this data, so we can just, you know, do a say, okay, well, the MJO looks like this, and here's what we get everywhere around the globe. And so I think that's something we can do now with just so much better data. I mean, obviously, Dr. Gray was always telling me, you know, how lucky I was having all this data back in his day. You had to call up people and have them send you data, and you had to kind of know what you're looking for, which I think is really a testament to his legacy is that he kind of knew what to look for. So he knew who to call and who to ask for it to send him the data because he kind of had an idea what might show up. Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. I mean, now we can determine where is the MJO by by going online. And and if we see that the MJO uh, is coming toward the Gulf or coming, you know, we have a sense that, okay, there may be more hurricane activity. Uh, I think that the 83 hurricane season where, where there were only four named storms was probably was a big trigger because that was such an outlier. 
But, you know, the that time period, I mean, it was freaking colonial times. I mean, in terms of <laughs> the way you would do things with no Internet and, and no computer data. And as you said, you know, he would call people up in Africa and and get the uh, records in there. I remember him talking to me about that. It kind of boggles the mind that he came to these you know, really accurate conclusions for for the most part yeah. Uh, yeah, by just looking at data. People, he was getting people to send him like individual weather station data from individual stations and like individual weather balloons from different areas. So yeah, I mean, it, it's ama- it was an amazing amount of like hand calculations and a lot of stuff done on a slide roll. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's crazy. I mean, these days, you know, or back then, hurricane specialists were struggling to make three-day forecasts. Right. And nobody really Mm -hmm. believed that you could forecast those things three days in advance uh, all the time, which was proved out in Hurricane Andrew. And then here comes Bill Gray in 1983 or 1984 saying he could predict the whole season. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you know, I mean, (laughs) really, when you think about the the contrast of of what was, uh, you know, the way those two things kind of fit together, it really is fantastic. I met Bill in, in 1983. Uh, I was at a conference and Bill gave a talk and started saying nice things about me uh, related to Hurricane Andrew. And we met after that. And he constantly said to me, you know, Florida is a sitting duck. You just wait. Florida is a sitting duck. The hurricanes are coming back. And uh, of course, he was uh, very right. You know, it was an amazing thing. So during the 90s, um, I got him some funding through Bill Bailey at the Insurance Information Mm -hmm. Institute. And Bill was an amazing man uh, himself and and a real contributor to Hurricanes at that time. Did you ever know Bill? I did, yes, yes. I got a chance to. I'm going to show a few times, and we actually still get uh, support from the Insurance Information Institute, so it's been a good, <laughs> long-lived relationship with them. And I think, you know, I mean, obviously with these seasonal forecasts, there is some good um, – there's a lot of useful information, I think, that comes out that I think insurance finds useful. And, again, it's not that – one thing I always want to stress, because people will say, oh, your seasonal forecast, you know, you, they increase my insurance rates. And there's there's no relationship. It's not like, oh, CSU's forecast came out today. State Farm tomorrow says we're going to you know, increase your rates 10% because they forecast a busy season. These rates are set months in advance, seasons in advance, and it's done generally by these sophisticated catastrophe models, which are right. basically what estimates risk. So they don't have a seasonal forecast component. But I think there's... There's a lot of curiosity that the general public wants to know how busy the season is. And I think insurance uses it more as an informational tool, um, not necessarily like prepositioning assets because we can't say where the storms are going to go, but just use it as an informational tool. And I think one of the things with seasonal forecasting is that, you know, we've learned a ton by doing it. And I think some of these things that we've discovered, maybe would have discovered just by chance, but I think a lot of it is when you have a forecast and when you have something like last October where it's like, what the heck was that? Why did the season just shut down? You know, like you learn a lot when you bust, especially. So like 2013, okay, you know, we forecast nine hurricanes in June, we got two. What the heck happened? Why was the forecast off by so much? And so that caused us to kind of re-engineer all our models. And since 2013, I'd say our forecasts have been perfect, but they actually have improved. And it's not to say, you know, we basically just overhauled all our models. We tried to kind of better understand kind of how the middle latitudes interact with the tropics to kind of get some of the stuff that we saw in 2013. Um, so I think really you do learn a lot by a forecast bus. So while it's certainly painful when it's going on, um, it does teach you a tremendous amount. I would assume, you know, people doing day-to-day weather prediction would agree, you know, the forecast bus are not, um, you know, not a pleasant experience when you're going through, but you learn a lot 
um, when you do bust. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So uh, there was one year uh, when, I, when I saw Bill regularly, you know, after we met. But one year, I think it was about 2000, wasn't it? He told me he had this amazing new student who was going to work on seasonal forecasts with him. And that was you, of course. Uh, so how did how did you connect with Bill and get involved with the program? All right. So, you know, I went to, so I did my undergraduate degree in geography, which is also what Dr. Gray did his undergraduate degree <laughs> in geography. So we had that nice connection, but I was taking a climatology class in my geography um, program. And the one, and I was always interested in hurricanes. And the professor at the time told me, she said, oh, there's this guy out in Colorado who forecasts hurricane seasons. Mm -hmm. And I thought, kind of like we talked about earlier, you know, that guy's nuts. You can't forecast a hurricane right. season. And so I went through and started, you know, reading his papers, looking at his research. and was like, wow, this guy's not crazy. He knows what the heck he's doing. And so I did various projects on seasonal forecasting and actually got my, um, when I finished my undergraduate degree, I did a thesis on seasonal hurricane prediction. Um, and then I took a year off and worked and then actually went and applied to graduate schools. And one of the ones that I applied to my first choice was CSU. And so I sent, um, you know, an application and I think I sent them my, my thesis or whatever. And, you know, and, and then I was actually at work and, you know, Dr. Gray called and, and, you know, back in the day when everyone had, you know, a, an answering machine on their home phone, um, he left a voicemail on our answering a message on our answering machine. And, you know, I <laughs> right. Very, very excited because he was kind of a celebrity to me. And so, you know, Dr. Gray was a great. And so basically once he offered me the, the position at CSU, I came out and worked with him and they haven't been able to kick me out yet. So I've been at CSU since I came out in July of 2000 in my 1992 Ford Tempo. And I've been working at CSU ever since. <laughs> well, yeah, I, can, I remember very well that. Uh... He was so excited. And then finally, when I met you and I, I don't know, I felt like you were 16 or something like that. But I know you've always looked a lot younger uh, than you really are. He was he was an amazing guy, his personality and his drive. And, and the fact that he attracted so many skilled uh, people that have gone on to be real celebrities in this field is really the, his biggest uh, tribute and legacy, I think. Yeah, and that's what he always said. He always said, "Isn't your only immortality to so your graduate students?" And he mm -hmm. had, you know, I, I, I'm lucky to be on that list. Like, I mean, there's so many that have done so many really amazing things. Like, you know, I put myself way down at the bottom of the list, but he has had a lot of really amazing students. And you know, if you look at the National Hurricane Center, Chris Lancy, um, Eric Blake mm -hmm. are forecasters at the Hurricane Center. Um, you know, they're both on the seasonal forecast team at NOAA, and they do you know amazing work. And his right. fork, you know, he's got people have done amazing research work. And I think. Kind of getting back to, you know, how Bill Gray got started with seasonal prediction is I think one of the reasons he was able to do it was because he had already been in the field for 20 plus years and had made really good contributions to tropical cyclone, you know, genesis, intensity change. Um, you know, he was one of the first to, just, to basically say, why, why do we have hurricanes in the North Atlantic and not in the South Atlantic, except on really rare occasions? You know, why do we get storms where we do? What are the drivers? You know, he made basically like, how does a hurricane tick? You know, what's the structure look like? The inner core, the outer core. I mean, he did all these work. So when when he came out and said, I can forecast a hurricane season, it wasn't just some like random schmo saying this. This is a guy who had had a lot of, you know, street cred, so to speak, right. when, when he started doing this. And so Neil Frank was director of the Hurricane Center in the early 80s, and he, had, he and Greg got back 20, mm -hmm. 25 years. So I think that Neil Frank kind of gave him a little bit of entree was that, you know, this guy's not crazy. He actually does know what he's doing. And you know, Dr. Gray wasn't a huge fan of publishing journal articles late in his career, but when he when he did his first seasonal forecast, he actually had two journal articles out as to here's what we're looking at and here's how the forecast works. 
Um, and so I, I love going back and looking at those papers because it's just, it's so classic Dr. Gray where it's like, start with six hurricanes. If the winds are like this, add one. If the winds are like this, add two. And just like, that's so classic right. the way he was. It was all back of the envelope, you know, yellow legal pad, number two pencil kind of analysis. And yet he, you know, pretty much conquered the world with, with, with that approach. And he was, he was never a huge fan of the computer. He would happily let his students use the right. computers and, right. you know, make the analysis. But he was always, he would just, print you print off reams of data and he would just look through table after table of numbers and yet come up with really good results from looking at those yeah i remember when i was there in in 95 i remember him pointing to the to the computers that the students were using out there but on not in not in his office <laughs> he didn't have, he didn't have exactly. big, he was a side rule man big whiteboard uh, <laughs> exactly yeah right? yes 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 his, white, his whiteboard was legendary and um yeah, yeah i mean just the amount of when he passed away, we went through his office and cleaned up stuff and just the amount of things we found in there because he he never really got rid of anything. Um, so we found like his original offer letter to work at CSU from sent from Herbert Real yeah. in like 1964 and just all the stuff that he had saved in there was a treasure trove of 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 um, really cool memories and neat things. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Well, it's really wonderful that you and Dr. Mike Bell have kept uh, Bill Gray's legacy alive with the seasonal forecasts and uh, improving them all the time. So just one more thing from your report that you put out, you know, on the, the latest forecast, you use the, the term, you say that it, it'll work as long as the atmosphere and the ocean keep operating in the way they have in the past, right? So do we have a, a, a sense in, in a warmer world that, you know, with the Gulf Stream slowing down to some uh, degree that indeed the ocean and the atmosphere are going to operate in the same way that they have in the past? I mean, I think that's a really good question. I think that's somewhat of an open question. I think one of the big things we need to understand is, you know, are we going to have a more El Nino-like or La Nina-like environment? I mean, I think that's a really huge question to us we really don't know the answer to. Um, and, you know, as the ocean, as the oceans continue to warm, you know, are hurricanes going to change in terms of like what's more important? Um, you know, certain, if you look at say the Western North Pacific Ocean on a seasonal time scale, the correlation between, you know, whatever metric, typhoon number, whatever, and water temperatures in the Pacific, Western Pacific is basically zero because it's not really, the waters there are plenty warm to support whatever nasty typhoon you want. It's other factors that are more important. And so, you know, will the water temperatures become less important in a warmer world than the Atlantic? I don't think we really know. A lot more is, how the waters warm in each basin relative to others. So if the Atlantic is warming at say one degree Celsius and the Pacific warms at two degrees Celsius, then the Atlantic's probably gonna have fewer storms while the Pacific has a ton, whereas alternatively, if it's the other way around, then we could have a real problem in the Atlantic. I think there's just, there's a lot of these kinds of questions I don't think we really know the answers to. And so, you know, and there's also natural variability. There's been times in the past where historically, if you believe the data, the relationship between ENSO and Atlantic hurricanes has been effectively zero. Um, and it's, was it really zero? Is it just bad data? And right. I don't know. And we're not sure. We'll never know really about the, the, the exactly. And so that's that, kind yeah. of one of the, those are the, those are the, it goes back to that proverbial siege of time and climate change, I think is another thing that could potentially add yet another factor that could, you know, 20 years from now, the predictors that we're using in seasonal forecasts may be somewhat different just because the climate has changed. I mean, right. 
the models that we built so far have worked pretty well in real time. I think this is like the third year that we're using most of them. They worked well for two years, but again, two years is a short sample size, but you know, basically we're gonna keep using those models until they have start to run into some real significant issues. Yeah, yeah. All right, Phil, as always, it's, uh, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for the good work and uh, thanks for being on. Thanks so much, Brian, take care. Take care. That's Dr. Phil Klotzbach, Hurricane Research Scientist at Colorado State University, longtime friend. You can tell what a strong presence Dr. Bill Gray was in everybody's life that he touched. I didn't always agree with Bill's conclusions, especially about climate change late in his life, but he was an amazing and generous man who attracted and turned out a number of the great hurricane scientists and forecasters of today. Speaking of which, on the next podcast, we'll talk to another of Bill Gray's students made good, Senior Hurricane Specialist Eric Blake from the National Hurricane Center. I'm going to talk to Eric about Bill Gray, of course, but also we'll talk about the ins and outs and challenges of making real-time hurricane forecasts at the National Hurricane Center, sometimes with limited information and sometimes these days with a flood of information. That's coming up next week on our new podcast, Tracking the Tropics with Brian Norcross. And remember to download the Fox Weather app where you can see my hurricane coverage. You can see Fox Weather on your phone or your iPad by just clicking in the upper right of the screen. And you can watch Fox Weather at foxweather.com or on the Roku channel, YouTube TV, and lots of other streaming platforms. So I'll see you there on the Fox Weather stream and follow me on Twitter at bnorcross and on Facebook and on Instagram. Just Google it. Until next week, I'm Brian Norcross. Be well and stay informed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.